Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. So uh, normally when I put together an outline, I kind of sketch out what I'm going to say at the beginning, up at the top of it. Um, today it just says, trains, y'all. Um, <laughs> we have a request. It's from John. It's about trains. Uh, and it's the story of Andrew's Raid, which is also known as the Great Locomotive Chase. That later became the subject of a silent film starring Buster Keaton called The General. It's about a very daring but also very failed plot to commandeer a train and destroy a crucial stretch of railroad during the Civil War. And the story is so awesome and full of excitement that we're going to tell it in two parts. It starts outside of Shelbyville, Tennessee, which is kind of in the middle-ish part of that state. From there, it goes east to Chattanooga, which is in Tennessee's southeast corner. And then it goes south to Marietta, which is a suburb of Atlanta today. And very approximately from there, it follows the path of I-75 northwest out of Atlanta back toward Chattanooga again. It is a rollicking adventure. And uh, to kind of set it up, the railroad was still relatively new to the U.S. at the start of the Civil War. The first U.S. railroads were built in the 1820s and 1830s. And even so, by the start of the Civil War in 1861, they were already absolutely critical to logistics and strategy for both the North and the South. Bridges and trestles especially were prime targets not only for attack, but for destruction by fleeing armies so that the other side wouldn't have access to them when they got there. And the South's rail network was by far the less developed of the two. And the South also had fewer engines and rolling stock. And so this meant that a strategic strike against Southern rail had the potential to really devastate its ability to move men and supplies. A particularly critical stretch of this rail network was the Western and Atlantic Railroad. And that connected Chattanooga in Tennessee with the city of Atlanta. Chattanooga was a railway hub, and so severing it from Atlanta would have been a serious loss. And in addition, the eastern portion of Tennessee was home to many people who were loyal to the Union. Tennessee had been the last state to secede, and eastern Tennessee in particular continued to have a lot of pro-Union sentiment. Strategists theorized that by severing the artery connecting Chattanooga and Atlanta, the Union could take eastern Tennessee with ease and then isolate much of the Deep South from the rest of the southern states. This brings us to James Andrews, who was from Kentucky. We don't really know much else about him at all, except that he had a fiancé named Elizabeth Layton. He had worked as a music teacher and a house painter and uh, had done other random odd jobs as well. And Andrews was really intelligent and extremely charismatic. Uh, one of the other raiders, Alf Wilson, described him as, quote, a noble specimen of manhood, nearly six feet in height, powerful build, long raven black hair, black silken beard, Roman features, a high expansive forehead, yet with a soft voice and gentle as that of a woman. Alf Wilson was one of like, I don't know, five raiders. A lot of raiders wrote books about this afterwards. Some of them are very colorful and not necessarily in line with what really happened. So when the war started, Andrews turned his attention to smuggling. He took quinine south through the northern blockade. He claimed that this was so he could earn the trust of the rebels and bring information back to the north with him because that's where his loyalties purportedly lay. 
However, since malaria was still really prevalent in the South at this point and quinine was used to treat malaria, this smuggling operation was probably also extremely profitable for Andrews. And it is also possible that his loyalties were negotiable as well for the right price. In my head, he just became Han Solo. He Uh, is very like Han Solo. That is a great comparison. Uh, His plan was to take a raiding team of 22 men to commandeer a train outside of Atlanta and ride it north toward Chattanooga, destroying the critically important Western and Atlantic Railroad track behind them as they went. He was definitely going to be paid for this effort, but it is not entirely clear exactly how much. Uh, Accounts of that part differ wildly, and I'm guessing there's probably not a lot of documentation of such a plan. No, there's really not. For many reasons. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Also motivating this raid were the plans of General Ormsby Mitchell, and he was planning to invade Huntsville, Alabama. If the WNA track was destroyed... That would slow down reinforcements that were coming to the battle. And as we talked about earlier, um, the severing the line between Atlanta and Chattanooga would probably make it a lot easier for him to take eastern Tennessee as well. Andrews had actually tried this raid idea once before. And the first time around, he hoped to accomplish it with a small crew of eight men. But he'd had to abort it at the last minute because his co-conspirator, a Georgia engineer who had turned traitor, never showed up at their rendezvous point. So it really never got off the ground. You know, they had to abandon it basically at the last minute. This time, though, he did get a go-ahead to assemble a team of 22 soldiers. Volunteers were basically hand-picked from the, tw- the 2nd, 21st, and 33rd Ohio Infantry Regiments. Uh, they took very special care this time to select some men who had experience with trains because they didn't want to repeat their experience of relying on a civilian turncoat who may or may not actually turn. Some of the volunteers were also given money and sent to nearby Shelbyville to buy civilian clothes and supplies. Others basically scrounged civilian costumes from camp, so they turned into a very ragtag-looking assortment of guys. And these 22 soldiers, plus one other civilian named William Campbell, met up with Andrews in Shelbyville on April 7th. They walked through the entire plan very carefully and talked about the risks involved, which were absolutely extreme. Uh, They were going deep into enemy territory, and since they had to dress as civilians, they would probably be treated as spies and not as enemy soldiers if something happened. And that would have meant that they would be hanged versus imprisoned. So it really was very, very dangerous. And uh, this case of, you know, the stakes being that they were going to be hung was doubly true as the South had already made a show of hanging railroad saboteurs and leaving their bodies on display. So there was precedent for the level of danger that they were walking into. From Shelbyville, all of them were going to go to Chattanooga by whatever means they could, and they were going to go in small groups to try to draw less attention. From there, they would take a train south to Marietta on April 10th and spend a night in a hotel before returning north again. Almost all of this journey was going to take place in Southern Territory, and their cover story was that they were from Kentucky and they were going to Atlanta to enlist. And now we will get back to the exciting and daredevil adventures of this train chase. The weather for their entire trek to Chattanooga was dismal. It poured mercilessly. Sometimes there were thunderstorms. Most of them were going on foot the whole way, and they just got absolutely drenched. 
Andrews was able to get a horse for part of it, but otherwise they were mostly just hungry, exhausted, and completely soaked to the bone. Because people were suspicious and on edge, many of the men did indeed have to try out their cover story, and they had varying levels of success with it. And as a side note, uh, some of their methods in doing this actually show that the stereotype of Southern people as being ignorant really goes quite a ways back. Uh, surviving raiders wrote of part of their disguise being to act as uneducated as possible. This might be why two of them, instead of being allowed to continue on their way to Atlanta, as they said they were going, did not fare so well with their excuses. Sam Llewellyn and James Smith met some some Confederate guards outside of Jasper, Tennessee. These guards saw some of the kind of obvious flaws in their story. Like, if you were from Kentucky, why would you go all the way to Atlanta to enlist when there were plenty of other southern places where you could enlist on the way? Um... This so, might have been where they tried out their I'm so stupid act. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> that may have been why the ones who were acting stupid. Well, clearly these guys are dumb enough to think they need to go all the way to Atlanta to get into the army. <laughs> um, so what, what happened to Llewellyn and Smith instead was that they were pressed into military service for the Confederacy immediately on the spot. And they ironically wound up defending Chattanooga in later action. Uh, Llewellyn, though, did desert as is at his earliest opportunity, which was also sort of part of the plan. Like, if if you tell them that you're going to enlist and they make you enlist, that's fine. Just desert (laughs) when you have a chance to do so. Eventually, uh, as the weather did, as we mentioned earlier, really hamper their efforts to get to Chattanooga, Andrews concluded that the same thing must be happening to Mitchell's advance into Huntsville, Alabama. So he decided to move the raid from April 11th, which was the original planned date, to April 12th uh, in an effort to give the rest of the men extra time to arrive at their rendezvous. And apart from uh, the two who were now Confederate soldiers, all of the men made it to Chattanooga. This was a huge accomplishment. I don't want to overlook that fact. They had managed to travel more than 100 miles into enemy territory, more or less without being noticed and with no casualties. Uh, very little went really wrong along the way for this part of the story. And once they got to Marietta, uh, some of them stayed in the Marietta Hotel, which was owned by Henry Green Cole, who was a transplanted New Yorker, who was also acting as a Union spy. Uh, evidence of whether this was deliberate is entirely circumstantial. Uh, the rest stayed at another nearby hotel called Fletcher House, which was the same hotel where Sherman later staged his campaign to Atlanta. Once they arrived, they found out that the weather had not actually delayed Mitchell's attack at all. He had already taken Huntsville while they were on the way. And while some of the men wanted to just abandon the plot uh, right at that moment, they argued pretty articulately that the people in Chattanooga were going to panic and increase the rail traffic coming south. Um, Andrews decided to press on. And reportedly, Andrews said, Boys, I tried this once before and failed. Now I will succeed or leave my bones in Dixie. So the next morning, uh, the Raiders boarded the train, with two exceptions. Martin Hawkins, who was one of the engineers who had been tapped for this, and John Reed Porter, who was traveling with him, either did not make arrangements with the hotel to be woken up in the morning, or... They did make arrangements, but the hotel didn't do it. Uh, Because, you know, we didn't really have portable alarm clocks at this point in history. Uh, Either way, 
They both got to the train platform just in time to see it pull away without them. So they missed the raid, which was unfortunate because um, uh, Hawkins had more engineering experience than the other two men who had similarly been picked because they knew how to work with trains. I just uh, can't help but feel that I would be the person that would oversleep and miss the raid. Because I have a little oversleeping problem. Uh, the rest of the men had purchased tickets to various destinations north. And they all sat near each other in the same car. And this train was pulled by an engine which was called the General. The conductor, William A. Fuller, was 25. And he was deeply, deeply loyal to the Confederacy. And he also had an ironclad work ethic. And he was pretty fit because he had previously, before becoming a conductor, worked as a train hand. And being a train hand involved, among other things, running ahead of a train carrying a flag that during when it was in treacherous track territory. So sometimes he would have to run ahead of a train for miles. He had also joined the local militia after the start of the war before the South had decided that experienced train workers would be a better service to the South at their jobs than in the military. And as the men boarded, uh, Fuller noticed them. He and other conductors had been told to keep an eye out for large groups of men who could be deserting. But the train was headed towards several Confederate encampments, so it seemed unlikely that the men who boarded the train were trying to go AWOL. And he didn't really become concerned that they were up to anything until a little bit later. As we talked about in our episode on the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, Train travel at this point was still very, very far from luxurious in the United States. Trains didn't generally have any kind of dining or restroom facilities, so instead they had regu- regularly scheduled stops for people to get off the train and eat and refresh themselves. This train in particular was going to stop for 20 minutes in Big Shanty, which is now Kennesaw, and its passengers were going to get to have breakfast at the Lacey Hotel, which was across the street from the train depot. And aside from the enormous Confederate encampment that was directly in sight of the depot, it was the perfect place to take the train. Uh, in addition to a 20-minute window when the train would be completely empty, the station at Big Shanty had no telegraph, so they would be unable to call for help. So the train stopped in Big Shanty at about 6 a.m., and the passengers got off. Andrews and his men casually decoupled the mail car and the passenger cars, and cut the bell cable that ran through to the passenger cars. This left them with the engine, the tender, and three empty boxcars at their disposal. Andrews then got into the engine with his engine crew, which were two two men named William Knight and Wilson Brown, and they, as we said earlier, both had train experience. The rest of the men clambered into the last empty boxcar. And as he sat at his breakfast table, Fuller saw them pull away. And he and two of his crew, uh, Anthony Murphy, who was a foreman with the railroad, who was on the way to Alatoona to inspect machinery, and E. Jefferson Kane, the engineer, gave chase with him, all of them on foot. Uh, the Confederate soldiers, though right there next to the train tracks, did not really get involved at this point. They left it to Fuller and his men. Well, they didn't, they didn't exactly know what was happening. Uh, Fuller, yeah, Fuller probably identified the problem quickly. Whereas they would not recognize what was happening. Yeah, he was absolutely sure that what was happening was was something that was up to no good. And so he's uh, he's the kind of guy who, um, like, when you see someone have a medical emergency, there needs to be somebody off ha- on hand that's like, you call an ambulance, you do CPR, right? Fuller yeah. was that guy. Uh, he <laughs> he directed someone 
to go to the telegraph station and call for help. And he directed someone else to go for a horse and get like he was very on top of tell people what to do to get this situation under control while he was. And this is the part that makes this just delightful. He was running in a full classic conductor's uniform, complete with a gold watch with a chain across the front of his vest. And his on, hat. And, and his hat. And running as fast as a train. Running as fast as he could after the train. Um, because I, because I'm a jerk, we're going to leave it here with this cliffhanger, uh, the, which is one of the moments in this story that makes you see how perfect it is for a silent movie starring Buster Keaton. Yes. Um, which I have watched, and it is also delightful, and it is on Netflix if you are into that. Uh, so, yes, we are going to pick up the second half of the story with everyone either on the train or chasing the train in our next episode. And for now, we will have some listener mail. Hooray! <laughs> So this listener mail I have is from Elise. And Elise says, hey, ladies, I'm an amateur historian myself with a bachelor's degree in history from University of Oklahoma. Having studied the Tulsa race riot a bit in my program and leisure, I have to say your time-constrained presentation was very informative and accurate. However, regarding the aftermath, there's one thing that wasn't taken into account in your admonition of the state's report slash commission. In 1997 and currently... There were 38 federally recognized American Indian tribes that claimed Oklahoma for their tribal government headquarters. I am a member of the Muscogee. These 38 tribes, plus many more across the country, have fought for reparations for centuries, not merely 80 years. Failing the victims of the race riot is a horrible stain on our state's history, but so is the treatment of sovereign nations then and now. Unfortunately, if the report slash commission determined that direct reparations were to be paid immediately or even over a number of years, then they would have set a precedent that would lead to payments being made to every person and descendant within the tribes. While morally the right thing to do, it would bankrupt the state. The report slash commission couldn't risk that. Again, unfortunate and heartbreaking, but this is the reality of our history and our present, at least. Um, so I wanted to read this for two reasons. One is that we talked a little bit about reparations and the controversy surrounding reparations. And this is really what I was referring to, that there are lots and lots and lots of different peoples within the United States who could make a pretty compelling case for reparations, right? For there's, sure. There's the entirety of the Native American population. Uh, there are many, many African Americans who can directly tie their ancestry to people who were brought over as slaves. There are a lot of people that can make a compelling case for that. So what we were talking about was not really, from my point of view, uh, an admonition. It was more shock that this was a time when reparations were not granted, uh, and the reason for that is that the state of Florida granted reparations to the people who were involved in the Rosewood Massacre, which was a very similar incident of racial violence that was a couple of years before the Tulsa race riot. Um, the state of North Carolina also paid direct reparations to people who were affected by the eugenics movement. So there is precedent for states uh giving direct reparations to people who had been directly affected by the state and were still living. Um, so in my mind, and this could maybe be more of an admonition <laughs> than what was in the prior episode, uh, that the idea of setting precedent is not actually, that's more of an excuse than a reason uh, in my yeah. mind for having um, not uh, not agreed to pay the reparations that the commission recommended. 
Um, you can read the entire commission's report uh, online. It's posted in a couple places. Um, and it's a, it's a hugely distressing read. I read the whole thing as part of the research for the podcast. But um, the what I was trying to express in the previous episode was really shock because their argument is so compelling and the way it's articulated is so profoundly uh, moving that I was surprised that people were unmoved to then pay the rec- reparations that were uh, recommended. So, yes, uh, I am definitely aware that there are many, many, many people who have centuries of history that could make a compelling case for reparations in addition to people who were affected by um, this particular event in history. So thank you very much, Elise. Um, we also got lots of other emails and letters and Facebook messages from people from Tulsa or from other places in Oklahoma who either didn't know much at all about the race riot or they knew about it, but only a little bit or they knew about pretty well. And the common theme in all of this is the sense that this particular event and its aftermath continue to have a profound and negative effect on race relations in Tulsa um, and farther into Oklahoma as well, which is part of why. (laughs) We do episodes about things like this to understand why things in today's world are the way they are in today's world. Yeah. So if you would like to write to us, we are at History Podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. We're also on Facebook at Facebook.com slash History and on Twitter at History. Our Tumblr is MissedInHistory.tumblr.com. And we are on Pinterest at Pinterest.com slash History. We have a brand new Spreadshirt store full of t-shirts and other goodies that you can purchase. It is at mistinhistory.spreadshirt.com. If you would like to learn more about another interesting and exciting and fun train story, you can come to our parent company's website and you can put the word train robbery in the search bar and you will find how the great train robbery worked. You can also come to our website, which is mistinhistory.com, to find show notes and interesting tidbits and all kinds of other stuff. Uh, so you can do all that and a whole lot more at HowStuffWorks.com or MissedInHistory.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. <laughs> <laughs>